Welcome back to the CIO Show. I'm David Benning, Associate Editor at CIO. Now, the public sector is in the process of wide-ranging digital transformation, which is changing how people, communities and businesses engage with government, while public services of all kinds have been delivered with increased speed and efficiency. Yet while digital technologies have huge potential to transform the public service, its size and complex bureaucracies create unique challenges for the deployment of large-scale complex systems. There have been innumerable large-scale failures projects running over budget and or time or failing to deliver altogether, invariably at considerable cost to taxpayers. But of course, there have been many great success stories, especially at the state and local level. Our first guest is Rowan Dollar. He's a veteran of a technology veteran within the public service, former CIO with the South Australian and Northern Territory governments. Rowan, welcome back to the CIO show. Thanks, David. Good to be back. Good to uh, talk with you again. Yes, thank you. Um, mate, I'll start up with, I'll play it fairly straight bad here. Where do you think the Australian public service is on its digital transformation journey at the moment? I think it's probably fair to say for the most part across most jurisdictions, uh, it's very early days. Um, I think there's a great misunderstanding of what digital transformation actually is. Um, And in in many cases, uh, what has actually happened is we've we've taken, um, uh, you know, a really convoluted um, uh, business process that's evolved over many years based on a paper um, you know principle um, taken that whole thing and just put it in and turned it into a, a, a digital platform and said we've just transformed the, the business um, when in reality that couldn't be further from the truth well it does it does seem as though you know to be fair there has been a, a fairly steep trajectory of um, you know, digital deployments across state and federal local government in Australia, but from a very low base, I suppose. That's, that's probably true. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, if we look at, at where government was, or, or indeed government and industry were, say, 15 years ago, mm. um, there was almost no digital uh, transformation at all. Um, you know, we had, um, you know, email. Um, we still had a, pr- a large number of people who printed out their emails and brought them to meetings. Um, <laughs> very few people do that now. So I guess there's been a successful digital transformation in the email space. Yeah, um, yeah. It's nothing else, I guess. Um, I'm not sure if you, if paper usage in the office has gone down or not, but um, certainly, uh, you know, it's um, you know my experience, for example, through uh, through COVID this year um, has been, you know, we did do a online transformation of. Um, the uh, Department of Human Services in in SA, um, and we did that because you physically couldn't meet people to get them to sign a piece of paper um, in a in a file. Mm. So we had to go digital. We had to start using PDFs and online forms and power apps um, because there was no other way of doing business. So that was forced upon us. And everyone from the from the minister's office uh, down to to you know um, uh, reception in fleet, if you like. Um, had to had to operate that way because there was no other way of doing it. Um, but I'm pretty sure that you could walk into most government departments, um, regardless of the uh, regardless of the level of the jurisdiction, 
um, in Australia, if not around the world, and they will still be using paper files. There will still be people walking around with a file that has a little, you know, for your signature sticker on it, and you've got to sign a piece of paper in order to get something done. Um, so we might have started out on a, on a fairly, uh, you know, low base, um, but there's still a long, long way to go. Um, and, and part of the problem is, is is defining what digital transformation actually is. Yeah, don't test that. Um, Haven't we done that yet? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, it, it's it's a it's it's a it's a way of delivering a business outcome. And if you don't understand what your business is up to, yep. then you can't digitize it. It's that simple. And most IT departments, in my experience, are sitting down in the in the engine room, keeping the lights on. Um, and that's what they do. Um, and that's what they're, you know, in government, arguably they're paid to do that. Yeah. Um, that's how the government budget process works. And that's one of the vagaries of, of government. Um, you know, once you're in the budget, it's pretty easy to, to, to spend that money, yeah. um, you know, with, with appropriate approvals. Yeah. But if you're, um, if you're not in that budget line item, if you're trying to be innovative, if you're trying to do something new, that's really difficult um, uh, it's much more difficult than, 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 you know, paying the phone bill that turns up every month. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, you know, as, as, as we've discussed in the past, I mean, there's you know, huge numbers of apps, lots of services are online, but perhaps that's something of a, of a, of a digital veneer and that, you know, as, as you sort of intimated, we've still got a long way to go before we're seeing genuine digital transformation at the core, at core processes. And then, of course, for people working in IT in the public sector, there's some fairly unique challenges in terms of, of, of innovating, right? There might be the desire, but it's not easy. Absolutely right. Um, and I think your, your concept there of the digital veneer is probably not a, a too far from the truth. Mm. Um, I, think, um, I, I think you're probably right. I think many of the processes that people are using are just the old archaic manual process that we've always used for whatever it is we're trying to do. Mm. Um, and then we, we design an app for that. And um, and we say there we go. Look, we've 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 just spent um, you know a million dollars or five hundred thousand or five million or whatever the number is um, to 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 design this new app and and deploy it. And then you've got two challenges. Firstly, is anyone going to use it? Um, and I would argue that you're about to find that most apps um, really aren't being used that much. Um, and uh, it'd be interesting to see a return on investment analysis done on on, on the individual apps as we go through. Mm. Um, but and that, those kind of questions aren't normally asked either. Um, but also, I think um, what happens is people take the clunky old process, um, they design that whole clunky old process into an app, and then say we've done digital. <laughs> well, we haven't done digital at all. Yeah, I mean, veneer, if you, if you had, veneer indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a veneer indeed. Yeah. I mean, it's very much like that duck swimming. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the, the customer sees the smooth duck gliding across the water yeah. um, and there's 47 public servants underneath it keeping the legs going. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's, that's, a, that's a problem. Um, uh, how do we change that? Well, I think we, we need to um, uh, take a fairly radical look at how we do budgeting in, in the public service. Yeah. Um, and, and those kind of, I mean, we talk about change um, as, a, as a cultural thing and we say that, you know, culture is from the top down. Well, I think these kind of budgetary changes have to come from the top down as well um, and make sure that uh, we can, um, you know, uh, uh, keep um, the, uh, that change happening um, as it's sponsored 
sponsored from the top. Yeah. Um, you know, in the in the in most organisations, whether it be the public service or not, um, when the chief executive or, or, or in you know, most in the government's case, the, the minister wants something done, mm. it gets done. Yeah. Um, so, so that's that's where the change has to has to start occurring. I think. Yeah. Um, how are we how are we doing our budgets? How are we um, you know if if um, I had a CFO uh, talk to me about this very subject a little while ago, and and he said to me, look, he said it doesn't really matter too much as long as you're working with inside the envelope that I gave you. Right. Um, as long as you're working within your budget, yeah. then that's all that really matters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where government needs to get to. Um, you know, as a, as a government CIO, you give me my budget for the year. I'm an executive. I'm a professional. Let me go and run my business unit mm. um, without worrying about the minutiae of, of how many cents are spent on that and how many cents are spent on that. Mm. As long as I'm within budget at the end of the year or within a reasonable tolerance of budget at the end of the year, that's a good result for everybody. Yeah. Because we can't, you know, I, I mean, 2020 is a great example of planning in January going out the door by, by March. <laughs> um, because in January we, we, you know, we had no idea what was going to happen in in Australia and the world in 2020 um, when we were sitting here talking a year ago. Now budgets are done from June to June, um, you know, June, June 30 to to, to um, you know the end of the financial year, and uh, we had no idea when we were planning for financial year 1920 or 2021 what was going to be happening. So what we need in the public service budget process is that incredible flexibility that the public expect of anyone that's delivering services to them. Because the service I need today may not be the service I need tomorrow. Yeah. Um, and government's got to be able to be small, agile, and flexible enough to be able to do that. Um, and and it's it's also looking at, at a platform layer. You know, most of the platforms in government, the IT platforms, are simply not flexible enough. Um, you know, I've been on many uh, many panels this year talking about whether we're going to do cloud or not. Really? Why are we still having that conversation? Yeah. We shouldn't be having that conversation. There's still <laughs> this on-prem mentality, right? Right. And, and that just shows the inflexibility of government. Mm. Now, mm. New South New South Wales, to their credit. Um, the New South Wales government have mandated in their latest cloud policy about mm, a month ago um, that uh, public cloud is the option. If you want to do on-prem, even in the government um, data centres that, that New South Wales has, you have to get an exemption from the policy. That's the way to go about introducing flexibility into IT particularly. And that was a, um, that was I, a very interesting, interesting development, wasn't it? Yes, yes, it was, um, and it's been a decade in the making. Um, and and I think um, New South Wales is showing the other jurisdictions in this case, um, you know, what to do and how to do it. And uh, I'm a proponent of cloud. Yeah. Ten years ago, I was not, yeah. um, but I am now. I, I think, um, and I've said this on the on the public record elsewhere, that um, to not use cloud services and the flexibility and the agility that they give is a misuse of the public purse. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I suppose it just must seem counterintuitive just to especially long-term long-term bureaucrats, right, who were um, – they're not agil- – agility and simplicity is not necessarily in their, in their DNA. And to your point about the budgets, I think that's fascinating. I mean, really, really what you're describing is a sort of 
a, a, a traditional bureaucratic fiscal framework which is directly at odds as the antithesis to innovation because it can't because Absolutely. it's impossible to do small incremental things which is what it's Absolutely about. right. Yeah. Absolutely right. Um, uh, you know, the days of the big on-prem migrations are gone. Mm. Um, you know, I know in, uh, in South Australia, um, the uh, Department for Child Protection um, have a, a legacy uh, system for, for their, their main, main management platform, um, which is uh, old enough to vote. It's probably 20-plus years old. And it originally came out of Victoria, I think. Yeah. Um, and it served the department well. Yeah. So um, the CIO there has said, well, we need to replace this thing. Um, we're not going to replace it, you know, in one big, you know, $50 million uh, project because, A, we, won't, we, won't, we don't have the funding, and, B, we're not going to do it that way anyway. So let's chop it and slice it and dice it and do a whole series of small projects mm. um, and do that and do the migration that way. And I think that's how a government needs to go. I think that's a really smart approach. Um, do it small, um, keep manage, uh, keep the, the, the management eye on what's going on. Mm. You're able to manage your risk, able to manage your budgets because you're not asking for 50 million. You might be asking for one or two million to do a piece of work, yeah. um, which is much smaller and much more manageable. And you can do that from financial year to financial year mm. without having five and 10 year um, project headlines and by the time you get down the 10 year track everybody that started the projects left no one understands what you were trying to do in the first place and, and the budgets are blown out because suddenly the vendors have taken over and no one's managing them either <laughs> here's a question do you think there must be a, a decent proportion of CIOs working in the public sector and particularly ones that are perhaps younger and, and more more ambitious to get involved in innovative projects that must spend time looking out the window wishing they were working in the private sector? <laughs> well, yeah, look, David, I think, um, I think to a great extent, be careful what you wish for, you might just get it. Yeah, right. Um, the, the, yes. uh, the, problems, the problems in government and the ones we're talking about mm. exist, exist out in private enterprise too. I mean, most of my career, um, you know, 30 plus years of my career, uh, has been in industry, um, working predominantly in the financial services, um, in the banks and stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, so um, the, the problems are the same there. Um, there are lots of people working in fairly bloated organisations um, that take a manual process uh, and, and uh, you know, we call it a digital transformation. Not really. Yeah. Um, building an app is not a digital transformation. I don't care whether you're in a bank or in government yeah. um, or anywhere else for that matter. Um, building an app is not doing a digital transformation um, by any, any, any stretch. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I, I think part of it, you know, one of the underlying symptoms, of course, is why waterfall uh, project, as a project delivery methodology is still hanging on. Yeah. Because people, people, that's what people think. That's how we do it. Um, we've got to get everything done, um, and then we'll we'll start to deliver a bit. And that's what projects are, rather than moving into a much more iterative, um, uh, and I'll use the word, you know, agile, mm. but with a capital A and a small A, yeah. um, and 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 go from there. Yeah. Um, it's because you can't. Um, if and twenty twenty is a great example. You, if you, you can't understand what the business requirements are in complete detail yeah. because you don't know what's coming down the track at you. Mm. Um, now, 2020 is a great example of that because we were sitting here a year ago 
No one in the world, I would suggest, had any idea what 2020 was going to look like. Certainly not in government and certainly not from an economic and business perspective. Who would have thought a year ago that we were going to send the whole country home to work from home? Yeah. yeah. Nobody. Nobody would have thought about that. Yeah. yeah, it's absolutely extraordinary. I'd use the word unprecedented because um, everybody else is using that word. It is unprecedented. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is unprecedented. It's a new um, paradigm. It's a new paradigm, even <laughs> quite so. Yeah. And so, so <laughs> how do you how do you plan for it? If you if you're trying to deliver a major waterfall program, mm. how do you suddenly pivot in the middle of that? You can't. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to be working in an agile and flexible way. Um, uh, you know, in doing project delivery in small pieces. Um, and that's how you manage your risk. That's how you can pivot very quickly if your requirements change. And let me tell you, remote working is a big deal for most organisations because you suddenly got to change, um, you know, how, you, how your security is working, um, how are people uh, logging into the environment, what access do you give them, how do you give them that access. All of those security questions are suddenly brought to the surface because they're no longer sitting on the land in the office. They're suddenly sitting at home on a public network um, and that's a, that you don't manage um, as a CIA that you don't manage. So, so that's, a, you know, that, that's, that's why you need to be um, agile in your approach. Yeah. Um, people said to me, um, you know, this year, um, uh, you know, during the, the, um, um, the CIO awards, um, you know, how did you achieve what you achieved? And I said, well, I just understood what the business wanted and then said yes a lot enabled the IT team to go and deliver that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's, that's important. Yeah, indeed. Rowan, uh, fantastic insights. Um, thanks so much and we look forward to having you back on the show soon. Fantastic. Thanks, uh, thanks again, David. Cheers. We enable any organisation to use any technology. We help all companies become technology companies. Protecting the identity of both workforces and customers. Connecting the right people to the right technology at the right time. Okta, one trusted platform to secure every identity in your organisation. Now, the New South Wales government is arguably the most progressive in, in the country in terms of embracing digital, embracing um, data science. Um, Joining us now is Dr. Ian Opperman, who was the first chief data scientist joining the New South Wales government in 2015. Ian, welcome to the CIO Show. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. Now, tell me about your 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 work. Then, I mean, it's been five years as a chief data scientist within the New South Wales government, the first state government to to appoint any any such um, you know to create such a role and I understand sort of key to it has been this establishment of the data analytics center tell me a bit, a bit about that so the the DAC was established in August 2015 and it was supported by a piece of legislation the New South Wales government data sharing act and the role of the DAC was quite simply to bring data and science to bear on what we call wicked policy challenges the problems that are complex subtle and ultimately have people's behavior at their heart. The philosophy of the DAC was bring as many data sets together as possible, acknowledging each one is imperfect, each one is incomplete, each one is biased, but every single one of them gives you a perspective and use science to really understand the complexity of these wicked challenges. Right. So um, presumably key key to this and key to the work that you're doing is 
you know, the application of, of technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning in government, right? Yeah, look, absolutely. So if you're bringing hundreds or sometimes thousands of data sets together, you really need machine learning or artificial intelligence to, to really make sense of it. So over the course of those five years, we've looked at increasingly sophisticated techniques to try and tackle the complexity of those many, many data sets, but also the complexity and the interaction of, of, of the challenges that we were looking at. And we've slowly but surely improved our skills and capabilities. And last year, we released a strategy and policy and how-to guide related to artificial intelligence. So tell me a little bit more about that. Because, I mean, of course, you know, we've, 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 we've all written and heard a lot about the... Um, you know, the, the, the more controversial aspects of, of artificial intelligence in the private sector, but presumably, you know, some of the ethical challenges that, that we all know about loom somewhat larger and, and contribute to a, a greater sort of risk um, challenge within, within the public sector. Look, that, that's right. And risk is something we should probably talk about. But, but the approach we took with AI was, was quite simply... We knew that the DAC was using more and more sophisticated techniques. We knew different parts of, of New South Wales government were using more and more AI. So Revenue New South Wales was building a vulnerability predictor so that you wouldn't just keep finding people who are vulnerable. Ministry of Health built a sepsis predictor so that when you came into emergency departments, if you were at high risk of sepsis, they would, they would predict it and take precautionary actions. Yeah. So the, what we did was try to unify that through a whole of government strategy, which essentially said, these are the principles we're going to apply, and that certainly includes ethical principles. Uh, these are the, the reasons and circumstances that we will apply AI. Mm. But we then put in place the next step, and this is the, the part which is important. We said, if you're going to apply AI, these are the principles that you, or the, sorry, the frameworks you need to put in place, mm. and then these are some practical examples. We, we workshopped all of this with a large number of stakeholders. We ran a summit last year. We ran masterclasses leading up to that summit. The summit included the Human Rights Commissioner, uh, the privacy commissioners, people from, from St. Vincent de Paul, uh, from a range of different stakeholders. Mm. And then we, we committed to not only learn from that summit, but also to, to keep doing this summit and keep checking on this activity uh, as, as we pass through the different years. So this year's event will actually now be in February, but we'll, we'll keep having the summit. We're also building an advisory committee so that we keep coming back and, and look at not only where we are now, but where we're going, and simply ask the question: Where are the red lines? Where are the where are the areas we shouldn't go with this AI use? So, part of this, I understand, is the AI Ethics Committee as well that you that you're sort of leading. Absolutely, applications close today if you're interested. But, uh, that's, <laughs> the idea is to provide that's that, friendly that's, criticism. That's, that's just exactly what I feel like doing on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> but it, the idea is to, to ensure that we've got people giving us that friendly criticism from a variety of different uh, of different fields. Mm. And as we keep moving forward, we're, we're constantly holding the mirror up to New South Wales government and saying, again, this is what we're doing, this is where we're going, tell us what the red lines are. Yeah, because of, of course there's a very, you know, there's not really much margin for error in, 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 in government when it comes to, you know, getting something like large-scale AI deployments where you're dealing with potentially sensitive private information, getting that wrong. Yeah, look, it's so part of the reason that historically governments have been slow on the uptake for different sorts of technology has been precisely the issue of risk. So mm. people within government take very seriously their responsibility around appropriate use of data. And that tends to, to lead, lead to more conservative behaviour than yeah. more aggressive behaviour. 
uh, Facebook's motto is run fast and break things. I think it's Facebook. New South Wales government has taken the approach that we won't run fast, but we'll move deliberately and we'll consult and we'll do it with a, a level of caution, but we will keep moving forward. Now, have there, have there been? Can you share with us any 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 of the more interesting uh, submissions that you received in terms of the um, the the ethics uh, your ethics efforts? So we're in the process of establishing uh, this committee right now. Yeah. Uh, it, it the whole process got a little delayed by COVID. During COVID, we were entirely focused on getting data to people who needed it and mm-hmm. ensuring. I guess that was a way of really stress testing our governance framework. Yeah. The, the layer on top of that is once you've got the data, use the AI. So where we, the first projects we'll look at are the ones that we showcased at the AI Summit held last year. Yeah. So the, the, the one from Revenue New South Wales, which is around predicting vulnerabilities. So if you're, for example, a homeless person and you're traveling around on the trains at night yeah. and you keep getting fined for having your feet on the seat, then that should show up. It, it, it's not terribly difficult to put some data sets together, run some fairly simple analytics and say, this person's very likely to be vulnerable. So what we will do instead of finding them and sending them down a pathway of, of actually increasing detriment, yeah. we'll consider the different alternative pathways. Yeah. So we'll look at that, but we'll also probably look at some of the other projects that we showcased, so the, uh, the sepsis prediction tool. Mm-hmm. And what we're looking for is really fitness of, of purpose of the data that goes into the algorithm, fitness of purpose of the algorithm itself, the, the quality of the decisions that are coming out of the algorithm, and then whether or not those decisions drift over time or whether there's, there's any bias that we can see through the data and in the algorithm itself. Yeah. So we're also, of course, looking at potential harm. So what in the case of uh, a vulnerability predictor, the potential harm is that you, uh, you, you oh, sorry, the way to think about the harms is what would happen if I didn't find this person and alternatively sent them a letter suggesting that they, they go to some other sort of, uh, course instead. The question then is to think through that process from a very human-centric perspective and think about any potential harms that, that could arise as a consequence of that data-driven insight. Yeah. In, in New South Wales, we had uh, some sophisticated analytics looking at drivers holding mobile phones. And that's, that's the sort of thing that image recognition and the ability to, to do that says that, okay, we spotted someone uh, whilst driving looking at their phone. Yeah. But the, the next step of automatically generating a fine was a step that New South Wales was not prepared to take. So there was the, the commissioner and looked at every single photo and said, uh, I, will, I will allow this fine to go through or I will, I will disallow this fine because of, because of reinserting human judgment back in the loop. So as we think through the use, increasing use of AI, we're thinking through that entire data lifecycle from which data sets are we using? Yeah. Are they appropriate for use? What's the data quality? Are they appropriate quality for the algorithm that we're looking at? Is it is it 95 octane or 98 octane data? And does my algorithim need 95 or 98 octane uh, data? Yeah. Then we look at the, the outcomes and how far we should take that. And if it's appropriate for a decision to go all the way through, a data-driven decision, think of an automated train door. Uh, and a train door might decide all by itself based on the data it's receiving to keep the door open for an extra 30 seconds if there's lots of passengers coming through, mm-hmm. low context, low harm, yeah. uh, relatively low issue, yeah. versus that, for example, automatic generation of a fine, you, you reinsert the human being back into that conversation so that you, you ensure that there's 
fair behaviour. And in the case of the sepsis prediction, it's a recommendation that comes from the device as opposed to an automatic process that runs. So we're looking at that entire life cycle of data use, including the AI component. So it's 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 very it's very compassionate. It's very human oriented. What you're talking about. It's very interesting. Yeah, you, you'll find that most people inside government get into government because they're trying to do good for society, and <laughs> yes. that, that it's often probably, diffi- probably difficult convincing a lot of journalists of that all the time. But no, I, I, I think I believe you. Yeah, if, if you look at the public servants, that, that really is why they're there, yeah. and, and that leads to that somewhat risk aversion of well, this could happen or the potential for harm does exist. Uh, And and that's been particularly true around data sharing. Over the course of the last five years, that has genuinely changed in New South Wales as more and more parts of of government become more sophisticated around use of data. The the DAC was was put there as a a real flagship activity. But Transport for New South Wales, doing great guns in terms of use of data, they are probably the data-led part of New South Wales government. Ministry of Health has, of course, been using health data for a long time, but they're now really starting to look at non-clinical, non-health data to, to think about, for example, their COVID response and, for example, working with Transport for New South Wales. So New South Wales has been on a fabulous data-driven journey, rapidly accelerated by COVID. And what we're looking to do now is as we start to build out the next version of the strategy for data use in New South Wales and the next uh, iteration of the Data Sharing Act in New South Wales is to try and capture the positives that we learnt from COVID, yep. bake them into the strategies and ultimately the legislation, and ensure that as we start to move faster in our data use our journey of data use, that we we've got the governance inbuilt, we've got the acknowledgement for the need for maturity around data use and maturity around data governance, and also we're constantly asking the question of is it appropriate to use this data-driven insight in this way. Yeah, well, that's that's definitely a key question, isn't it? Uh, Ian, thanks so much for those insights. It sounds like some really fascinating work that you're doing over there, and um, you know, with with implications for all the, the entire citizenry, but in p- particularly people who are vulnerable. It's great work, and look forward to hearing more about it, and look forward to having you back on the show soon. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Joining us now is Dean Laseka. He's a senior director analyst specialising in digital government with Gartner. Dean, welcome to the CIO show. It's your first first appearance. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dave. Now, I understand, Stan, you spent some 10 years working as chief digital officer for WorkCover Queensland, working on that yeah, department's yeah. digital transformation. Tell me about that experience. Yeah, look, you know, that was uh, it's, it's a little while ago now, but... Uh, mm. Uh, yeah, it was certainly a, a great experience, a great grounding for me. Is that I'd come into government from private sector, from you know, on the consulting side of things. Uh, so it was my first sort of foray actually working for government. Yeah. Uh, and I was really fortunate. You know, it, it, it was a, a big process. It was a slightly different era to what we have now. Uh, but I was lucky to have some really good leadership uh, above me and around me. Yeah. Uh, they were, they were sort of uh, not saying that they were actually. Uh, digitally astute, you know, that, that, that they were understanding that the outcomes that they were trying to achieve. So that was really tying the benefits of technology back to the outcome. And, you know, when you get that top down, uh, the cultural aspect was huge. You know, they were really able to sort of create a supporting culture for change, which is you know, a challenging thing. And what, was the, what did that digital transformation entail? We, we spoke to Rowan Dollar, private, you know, public sector tech veteran earlier and we talked about the the difference between genuine digital transformation and, and 
kind of flag this idea of perhaps you know digital veneer i mean what what mm. to what extent was the trans did the transformation occur there yeah okay so like like many parts of government you know work cover is a case management type organization they happen to deal with claims mm. so you know they have back in the day they they had paper files and those paper files were tracked around the organization and it was an imperative that you know you never lose a file just everything was in there yeah. uh so the the early stages of that transformation you know meeting expectations, making things better. It was really just about, you know, simple things like you know, getting electronic versions of files and being able to get incoming content um, that is routed directly to the file. So at mm. the start, really low-hanging fruit. Mm. Um, but as you say, that, that that didn't change the way they worked. It didn't change the way they, they actually did it. Yeah. The real transformation started to kick in when we actually started to allow them to look at the claims in a totally different way. So they went from, say, simple things like managing a claim based on proximity uh, to the injured worker, and they were able to transform that into actually managing skills-based routing. So they could actually look at who's the best people to manage these claims, wherever they be across the state. They were able to look at profiling of the claim and understanding, you know, what are the risk factors and how can they change their their strategy around management. So a lot of it was, you know, I can talk phrases about the apps that we created and the, the, the completely changed relationship uh, where if you were to be within Queensland now, the entire claims experience can be managed you know, through your mobile phone, including interactions with claims officers, all of those great things, which is a great, as you say, digital veneer. Yeah. But the real change was the behind the scenes. It changed the way that the organisation worked. It changed the way that the organisation was structured. It allowed them to test new ways of working, had better analytics. So, so you're right. There are very two very different aspects to it. You know, perception-wise, mm-hmm. all the visible stuff mm-hmm. was what changed the perception. Yeah. But inside, the the way that things were able to be managed differently, work was able to be routed differently. They could structure their their work efforts in different ways and review things differently. Yeah. That's where the real transformation came from. Sure. So, all right. So, full support, cooperation from the top. Yeah. Um, you know, proper proper cultural framework. Surely a handful, you know, one of a handful of exceptions that proved the rule. If you're looking at at digital in yeah. the public sector today, look, I mean, you and you talk yeah. to a lot. Of, you talk to a lot of CIOs in the public sector. Yeah, and I, again, look, you know, I'm I'm a little embarrassed about how well we had it. You know, we had a little bit of time on our side. We we had some executive support. We had good cultural leadership. Yeah, we had funding, and we were able to, you know. Uh, proved that we could do what we were saying and that built confidence and we moved forward. In reality, for most, they today they don't have that luxury of time. They don't have that luxury of funding. You know, in, in a lot of ways, a lot like a lot of public sector jobs, uh, IT leadership and government is really a thankless role. Yeah. So what we see, I guess, is that there's a lot of pressure uh, com- coming to bear within IT areas to be able to sort of drive transformation. In a lot of cases, that transformation is being driven without necessarily clarity around the overall business plan of, of the department or the agency. Mm. Um, they have no funding, so they're asked to do a lot more uh, with less money. You know, it, not necessarily budgets are, are being cut, but in a lot of senses, that budgets even standing still while they're being asked to do more uh, is incredibly challenging. Big chunks of the budget are often being dedicated to looking up the legacy system. Yeah. Uh, so it is, you know, the, the challenges go on. Yep, yeah, sure. 
and and as as you know, uh, Rowan Dollar and I discussed earlier, and we the the, the funding model seems to be, you know, a, a, a serious a serious pain point. Yeah, the fiscal yeah, model. Def- definitely, it's one of the most common conversations. Look, and I think we've touched on it once, and we can come back to it. But but fundamental cultural is, is absolutely the biggest challenge. You know, it's never going to be about technology; it's been about culture, but. Underpinning that, we start getting into challenges around funding. We get enormous pushback and challenge uh, with procurement in government. Um, but if you, if you look at those things, you know, why are we having funding challenges? Why are we having procurement challenges? Some of it is a, a, a lack of that uh, executive level understanding of the impact that technology can have. You know, mm-hmm. so not, not technology for technology's sake. Mm-hmm. And the other is risk and risk management and understanding, you know, it's not unfounded concern. Governments at every level have concerns about the perception of, of risk and the perception of failure. And it's, it's something that we discussed earlier. It's, it's partly this risk aversion that, mm. that, that, you know, that many people attribute, you know, largely attribute as the reason for some of these big project failures. Yeah. Ironically. Look, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it becomes a catch twenty two. Yeah, it's like it's one of the craziest things is that um, you know what all of us, like any citizen, no one wants you know a public dollar to be wasted. Mm. Uh, so you know, no no government IT project sets out to fail, uh, and there's a lot of money and a lot of gov- uh, money spent on establishing you know governance frameworks to look at ensuring that that doesn't happen. Yeah. Yet you know, we see it happen time and time again, and and. And each one of the scenarios where we see failure, look, you know, when you can do root cause analysis, you can work out why and you know, whether that's ever publicly released is a separate conversation. But what it really does is it means the next project, doesn't matter whether it's in a different state, different level of tier of government, the next IT project has more belts and braces put on, more restrictions, more governance wrapped around it, meaning it costs more to do, takes longer to deliver, yeah. uh, you know, making it further and further away from anything that might even resemble iterative or agile delivery. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we've seen we've seen some we've seen some pretty big failures in the public sector. Obviously, I mean, Robo Debt's probably the most high profile. We had the issues with the MyGov MyGov website, you know, falling down during COVID. And yeah, like suppose to your point, and <laughs> IT in the public sector can be can be somewhat thankless, and um, a lot of CIOs in the space must have been under a considerable strain this year. I wonder whether wonder they whether they're going to become to be more appreciated. Do you think? <laughs> well, well, what we've definitely seen is, is it's it's a it's an interesting catch twenty two. So in government uh, organisations, especially across Australia and New Zealand to an extent, um, often the, what we would refer to as a CIO under different names in different departments is often quite removed from executive leadership. You know, they can be a little bit further down the decision-making tree. Well, compared to, uh, compared to the private sector, you mean? Yeah, compared to the private sector, absolutely. So that's, that's, yeah. interest, it, that's interesting because, I mean, yeah. we've been, you know, certainly CIO, we've been talking to CIOs, you know, a lot of CIOs in the private sector and writing a lot of stories about how, you know, the status of the CIO is, is, has been, you know, rising um, yeah. steadily and surely over the years and then, and had even, and even sort of accelerated. Um, throughout COVID, but you're saying that, that that trend is not really evident in the public sector. That's very interesting. That could account for a lot well, of the help explain a lot of the problems. Well, well, well the one thing we have seen with COVID, uh, which is what I was going to mention, is that uh, that that relationship with executive leadership in government has improved through COVID. 
Mm. So yeah, it has been a historical problem. And and believe me, I guess with government, there's so many you know areas. It's hard to talk about it as one collective. Um, we have some government CIOs that could not be closer to the executive leadership. You know, they are part of the executive team. They're rarer. Exactly, yeah. Other ends, we've got plenty that are, are, are very much removed that are really seen as just operational, uh, you know, uh, service delivery areas. You know, they're not about leadership of change. They're really about service delivery. Yep. But COVID has, has certainly shifted the dial on that for a lot of government organisations, you know, the relationship with executive leadership has improved. Uh, their ability to take over and, and lead some of the strategic projects through this period has improved. And, and that's going to change perceptions uh, going forward. You know, if it's, if it's, you know, if you maximize that advantage, obviously, you know, you're only as good as your last failure, unfortunately. Uh, and, you know, if, if they build on that relationship that's happened in, the, in this period of time, there's a real opportunity for, for leadership and IT to, to take that step forward. Um, but but it will depend on, on how they sort of handle this sort of 21, 22 period. Yeah, sure. And, you know, not to be too negative, and there's been, there's been some, you know, there's been some notable successes in, in the public sector in Australia. I know we were talking recently about, you know, the, the fact that the tax department, you know, standing up um, the JobKeeper functionality, for instance. Yeah. Yeah, look, you know, there's, there's uh, an interesting period of time. What, what we learned through COVID is that, uh, you know, and, and we actually were, were talking about this pre-COVID. Uh, it's an interesting one. So if we look at, you know, maturity of government, I don't want to spend too long on this, but, but if you look at digital government maturity, uh, we've been looking at that for year on year for a while now. And, and it really has been slow moving. Um, people are, are, are struggling. And it, ultimately it came down to, to two factors that we identified. One is, is urgency. You know, what's that driver for change? Yeah. Uh, and then the other one sort of leads into that whole culture, culture discussion. What's the readiness for change of the organisation? You know, do they have the skills, the capabilities, the ability to sort of adapt to new things? And without urgency and without readiness, uh, we see a lot of digital initiatives struggle to, to, to make progress. Yeah. Now, come 2020, and obviously as, as horrendous as an event as 2020 has been for many parts of the world, uh, and even in parts of Australia itself, uh, there's been no doubt that urgency within government has been uh, highlighted. And, and government had to really stand up some amazing services, things that wouldn't be possible to have been done both in the public domain and behind the scenes yeah. in an incredibly short period of time. You know, you, you could imagine trying to get governments to work at scale remotely across the country and seamlessly with service delivery. That, that was a massive undertaking for yeah, government. It was. Uh, and, and as you say, then there's the public services that they, that were put out, you know, dealing with things like, you know, border control, as unpopular as it was, and dealing with JobKeeper. And, you know, sure, there were some setbacks. Um, but considering the, the speed at which these were rolled out, uh, you know, there's a lot to be proud of in government uh, in, the, in the way that they've handled this period. Yeah. And I wonder whether, well, it's, it's probably a, Probably a truism, I suppose, that the the COVID experience is the, and the urgency that was um, triggered by the COVID experience is, is potentially going to shift that cultural DNA within the public sector, um, which is going to be so critical for you know enabling digital projects moving yeah. forward. Do you think? Well, it's an interesting one, and, and I'll I'll thank one of my uh, New Zealand colleagues for this. Is that if you've ever been to Wellington, there's there's a big wind gauge, you know. Mm. You know, notorious for its wind, big wind gauge, you know, can literally, literally almost blow down to the ground. Uh, the, the challenge is, is when the wind stops, it, you know, it pops back up. Mm. Now, the, the concern with government, and, and certainly 
sort of the, the double-edged sword with how well uh, Australia has done, uh, as well as New Zealand, is that you know we saw a lot of government uh, organisations back on their feet rapidly. We saw them back in the offices, uh, certainly more quickly than other parts of the world, and obviously you know differs across the country. So, so much opportunity for change and learn, and, and now obviously the focus is very much on how do we you know spend every dollar that's going to help get people back on their feet, help businesses get back on their feet. So a lot of focus now on you know really urgent requirements. The challenge is is that if if, if they don't take advantage of, of some of the broken practices, you know, when when you know people were willing to work different ways when they're working remotely, now that they're back in the office, if all that goes away and you try to then sort of address it 12 months, 18 months down the track, you're going to be back to those same cultural norms that are going to be hard to break. Yeah, sure. Hard to imagine. Hard to imagine things snapping back to normal. Uh, Dean, thanks mm. so much for those insights. Very appreciate your time and uh, look forward to having you back on the show soon. No worries. Thank you very much for your time, Dave. Thank you. Our final guest is Jason Hutchinson, who's Deloitte's Government Digital Transformation Lead. And Jason was a founding member of the Eclipse Group, um, which you might recall some 20 years ago Deloitte bought and subsequently formed the basis of Deloitte's uh, Deloitte Digital. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks, David. Now tell me, mate, what do Jay-Z and Beyonce have to do with digital transformation in government? Yes, a, a great question and uh, <laughs> quite, quite, quite a strange one. Here's, no here's one we prepared uh, earlier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, listen, I, I love to use uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce as a, a really good example of a power couple, right? Um, so when we talk about uh, public sector or, or collaboration within government, I, I guess my challenge is who will be uh, our first power couple, right? Our first Beyonce and Jay-Z who can really make some magic, right? Whether yeah. that's government collaborating across, uh, uh, you know, different levels of government or whether it's uh, the public sector and uh, private business collaborating together. So um, when I talk about uh, collaboration, um, I kind of look at it in three different ways. And our first one is, you know, sort of the Love Island example where we have, uh, you know, a very brief kind of fling and kind of work out that it's not really uh, for us. Yeah. Right? Uh, the second level uh, sort of collaboration is, uh, you know, the friends, you know, friends with benefits. It, <laughs> it kind of works. It kind of works when there's something in it for, for, for yeah, me. Yeah, right? yeah. And then uh, obviously the third one is uh, the Jay-Z and Beyonce, uh, which I think we should all really be uh, striving to kind of get to and, and, and create some absolute magic. Yeah, sure. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, you know, what, you know, our, our earlier guests, we spoke a lot about digital transformation within government agencies and many of them are so large. It's, um, you know, it's, it's perhaps a little unreasonable for, for many of them to start thinking about collaborating outside of their departments, so with other agencies across different levels of government and in the private sector. But tell me a little bit about your, you know, your, your perspectives on, on, you know, what, what we could you know, achieve within government and within our communities if we had that that sort of, you know, cross-agency and even into the private sector collaboration with government? Yeah. Uh, I, you, you know, the thing that really struck me was at the start of this year, um, I was up in uh, the south coast of New South Wales in a place called Marimbula, right? Um, and we had the, the, the devastating bushfires up there. But um, what really kind of uh, brings that to life is that, you know, from a public sector perspective, we're providing all these products and services, but they tend to stop at these state boundaries, right? So, 
if I looked at live traffic information, um, I could see live traffic information on the New South Wales app or the Victoria-based app or, or fire alerts from yeah. the different areas. But, yep. you know, it, it, it doesn't work for those people who are sitting there on a, in a coastal town, right? We've got to stop the, um, you, you, you know, we've got to make this information available across borders and mm. uh, share, share this information. Yeah, it's a fantastic example, isn't it? It's um, brought brought home in rather terrifying ways. Um, also, things like things like waste management. I mean, these you know th- that that is a huge huge problem in our in our society, of course, and, and growing as our population expands. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it, exactly. And, and again, I think that's a really nice example, right? So you know, if we think about hazardous waste material. You know, we uh, within our states, we, we have all these programs that look at the tracking of waste material right from uh, the generation of that waste uh, to, to the disposal of that waste. But again, we find it really difficult to track waste once it crosses the border, mm. right? Mm. And even if you took that one step further, we're really not going to save uh, solve the waste management or ha- uh, uh, hazardous waste management issue until we can get a lot of different departments collaborating and sharing that information. Right. So, yeah, yeah. when does that material come into the country? You know, who has access to that material? What do they make from that material? Um, all the way through to the the disposal of that material. Uh, again, that needs collaboration across a lot of different departments to kind of make that work. Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose also, I mean, and perhaps you know, frighteningly for for, for many of us, um, if if there was you know seamless uh, collaboration between all government agencies, there would it'd be it'd be a lot harder for. Um, It'd be a lot harder for people to uh, do things they're not supposed to, right? I mean, especially especially fraudsters. Presumably, you know this this kind of vision for for you know total government integration would um, potentially almost eliminate fraud, particularly you know around things you know if you're thinking about linking up social security and tax and, and correct and land yeah. and other things that track people's assets and so forth. Correct. Yeah. I, I, listen, I think it will go a long way to solving. A number of different issues that we kind of uh, have, you know, even the uh, um, you know, the sharing of information between the public and private sector. I think there's so many uh, fantastic use cases that can really, um, you know, provide a lot of value uh, to citizens. You know, whether it's providing information to them or, uh, as you said, sort of uh, uh, stopping some of this fraudulent activity that we see. And are you seeing any, you know, are you seeing any examples of this? I mean, are there any are there any government agencies or different gov- levels of government, you know, this sort of collaboration we're talking about, are you seeing any evidence of it or, or any sort of genuine, um, you know, moves to, to affect it? I, listen, I think there's, there's pockets of it. I think mm. there's, we're starting to see lots of uh, conversation around it. And I think uh, definitely with COVID, um, you know, our appetite to, um, you know, do things in a different way um, and be more sort of agile and open to kind of sharing and working with others is is definitely, um, you know, sort of increasing our appetite to do those things. Um, you know, an example that I like, and it, it's probably a, a, a reasonably old example now, actually comes out of the UK where Tesco, uh, the shopping centres, did a really nice collaboration uh, with the Diabetes Foundation in the UK where oh, they right. shared yeah. uh, uh, shopping information uh, with the Diabetes Foundation who could then give, um, uh, I guess, suggestions 
to uh, to the shoppers based on uh, the types of ingredients that they were buying, right, and mm. the impact that it could have on their diabetes. Yeah. Well, that's that's a whole other question too, isn't it? This this integration between government government agencies and and the private sector. I mean, there's kind of the mind boggles. There's a world of possibility there, but complicated, of course, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What to government? What in your view? What you know? How to how would a, how do government agencies, um, you know, pre- prepare themselves technically, culturally to, you know, embark on on those sort of projects? I mean, you know, as we know, and as we discussed earlier in the show, um, you know, large scale digital projects in government are typically difficult. And some of them fail spectacularly. Yeah. Now adding, yeah. And now adding another layer of <laughs> complexity potentially onto on, onto that. Um, not so, not something to, to not not a trivial undertaking, let's say. No, listen, it's it's, it's not. Um, you know, and obviously there's going to be a lot of uh, different types of complications around it, right? Um, you know, I think um, as you sort of mentioned, um, you know, there is a cultural change that's kind of needed to do some of these things. Mm. Um, and I feel like we're kind of uh, there. I, I, I feel like we're right on the cusp of us. Uh, you know, within public sector, doing some great collaboration, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, whether it is between public sector uh, and private sector, or whether it's just across the, the different tiers of government, right? Mm-hmm. And and I really do mean that. I mean, you know, from a citizen's perspective, um, you know, they find it even really difficult to understand the three tiers of government, right? Like who provides what service? Yeah. Um, you know, and I think we we saw that. Um, during COVID, right? You know, who's responsible for healthcare, who's responsible for aged care, um, you know, and there did seem to be, you know, some sort of finger pointing across uh, across that sort of process as well. So, um, you know, we just need to simplify it and and make it much more about the the products and services and the life events, um, you know, from a citizen's perspective. Um, And I think that collaboration um, with the public sector and private sector is going to be key to um, really changing the way we, we go about things. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And, and yeah, very interesting with, you know, those, those two major crises, the bushfires and the, and, and, and the COVID, sort of bringing this conversation into sharp relief. Jason, thanks so much for joining us on the show and we look forward to having you back again soon and um, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Hopefully uh, looking forward to a better 2021. Uh, thanks very much, David, and likewise. Cheers, mate. Bye. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. Our next and final episode for the year seems appropriate as we all look to turn off and recharge over the holidays. Automation. Whether we're talking about robotic process, IT, or intelligent automation, it's a growing area of interest how to automate laborious, perfunctory, time-consuming tasks, ideally freeing people, tech professionals, to work on more important stuff. This episode, we'll talk to CIOs and analysts about where automation is today, what are the technologies, real-world applications being deployed in the field, where is this technology heading, what are the challenges, dangers of having a set-and-forget mindset, and should we really still be worried about some tech professionals becoming less relevant or, even worse, losing their jobs. We hope you can join us.